The No Sleep Podcast presents Suddenly Shocking, Volume 16. A collection of short, sudden stories with lots of twists and turns. These furiously fast tales are postcard length, and they can take you on long journeys before even leaving the station. So settle in and join us as we serve up these bite-sized stories dripping with dark and foreboding horror. You Can Have the Rest by Morgan Wilson The night is dark. The drums have fallen silent. The bell tolls are heard by no one. Rain patters on the rooftops. Mist rises from the ground, a shroud over the cobblestones. There you are, the wisp of my memories, the forgotten one, the never-ending, never-dying, never-ceasing one. You wander between the alleys, swaying with a breeze that isn't there, the edges of your fog curling under windows, toying with their edges. Is that one there open? Did some poor soul leave it open a crack? For some cool night air? For the sweet summer breeze of lilacs and rosemary? For you? Oh, surely not for you, my lonely child. But you will go in anyway, and make your way so gently up the stairs to the rooms you know aren't yours. Hearing your way to the soft, slumbering snores of babes, your tendrils warping the floorboards behind you. A trail of silver dew showing your path, silent as death. I could scream, yell, shout for you to stop. But that would mean opening my window. That would mean inviting you in to see me. And now with my own sweet babe asleep beside me. I will not shout. I will not scream. They knew as well as me you do not leave a window cracked, a door ajar. Not when the summer moon is high and rain falls on the open moors. Not when the water runs with a copper tang and the wind blows with a soft song. We know you'll come. When these things pass, we know you'll haunt our streets. So we close our doors, seal our windows, and pray you leave fast. But you never do. Not until you have what's yours. A young one, maybe two, from some unbelieving family who leaves their home open just enough for you to creep and sneak and leave your trail of weeping mist and place your soggy kiss upon innocent lips. When the morning comes, you'll be gone, with more children to add to your throng. You're a loving mother, a wanting one, And so you come to claim what you think is yours. A doe-eyed boy here, a curly-haired girl there. It eases your pain for a while. But you'll be back. You always are. So I won't shout, or scream, or cry, lest I draw your attention to mine. And always will my door be shut, and window sealed, for my child you will never steal. All the others you can have, but not mine. Not mine. I'll make sure a window is open for you. To take what you so desire. So long as it is never mine. Never mine. 
You can have the rest. Cameron. Since losing my job, I'd been relying on my cousin to throw me some opportunities through his company. Arthur offered to let me move in with him and his family, saying I could keep an eye on the kids. But I was known for looking away at the worst possible moments. Well, the temporary gigs kept me afloat. And one morning, Arthur texted me with a very simple job. The pay was half of what I'd usually get, but all I had to do was sit in a room and move one finger at the beginning of every hour for eight hours. I heard about the latest, maybe you're replacing a faulty robot. <laughs> that text was from my best friend, Tyler. He was away on business and had promised, as he often did, that he was ignoring me on purpose. Please go back to pretending I didn't exist, thanks. I sent him. I'd known him since I was five, and maybe it was enough already. A taxi was sent to pick me up. The driver shook his hand in the air when I tried to walk to him. The sight of that miserable old office building instantly brought down my mood. And did I get an office? No. It was a small room without windows, a large computer monitor without a keyboard, and a desk without decoration. One camera in a top corner is worn. Lumpy swivel chair, not unexpected, no warning given. The button was, disappointingly, not red. Taped to the wall above it said, This button must be pushed every hour. I was half an hour early. See, I would lose the day's pay if I missed a single push. On the other hand, according to the rules, the button was not to be pressed at any other time. So, no test pushes. I cracked my knuckles, stretched, did a few mental pirouettes, since my body was incapable, spun myself off the chair, and ate a grade that somehow found its way into my pocket. The computer would do a countdown before each push, though I'd set an alarm on my phone just in case. The monitor had a weird background, poor quality stock photos of various rooms. When the moment arrived, the button was shockingly difficult to press down. I had to jump to my feet and use both hands, freaking out the whole while because what the fuck? In the second time, even harder. I was growling from the effort by the third hour's push, and my arms ached. I first noticed it while reading random articles on my phone. Movement on the computer screen. A quick glance revealed nothing. I wanted to text my cousin that I'd be out of here after today, but it would reflect badly on him. I couldn't let him down. I began to count each push. Four... Five. Six. Seven. 
The last one was the toughest. I utilized a heavy encyclopedia I'd found in a storage space, and on top of that, my elbows. A message popped up on the computer screen. If you would like a bonus, speak an uncommon sentence of five words. I broke my favorite teacup. The screen changed. I couldn't comprehend the full picture at first. I focused on the hooded man who was writing huge letters on a whiteboard as I watched. The words I just said. I broke my favorite teacup. The screen changed again, flashing from room to room. Marked between eight to three. Those were the hours that I'd worked today. 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m., 12 p.m., 1 p.m., 2 p.m., and 3 p.m. They weren't photos anymore, but live video. And the corpse in every single one. There were contraptions set off, wires and blades, smoke from a fire that had been put out. A gas mask pulled off a face. A chair bent forward, lower and lower, into a bloody tank. And one head hanging from a chain, body still pinned to the floor. My cousin's head. It was in that last room that the hooded figure turned to face the camera. To face me. My cousin, his family, my parents, even strangers. One body was unrecognizable. Every hour I'd marked with my own hands, I had killed someone. I meant to scream, but I was voiceless. voice coming from the computer my phone buzzed carver out must meet asap that had been sent this morning but i hadn't received it i'd already arrived here and just minutes ago, also from Detective Saunders. Tracking phone now. I testified against Carver eight years ago. I was the one who got him captured. But he couldn't be out because he was in prison awaiting his execution. As I watched him raise the phone in his hand and remembered that he liked to collect phones from his victims to trick their loved ones. A new text showed up. I broke my favorite teacup, frowny face. It was from Tyler. Except it wasn't. I'd been talking to Carver the whole time. 
my bulging eyes went to the thing shown on the monitor that had once resembled a person. And there it was. The scream. Carver left the room laughing, just like he did eight years ago. I stayed, knowing I would never laugh again. The echoes, so dark, so cold, so far away, by John Beardafee. And to think the shower used to be my safe space. The building was new, seven floors, 35 units. My apartment was number 23, sandwiched in between two floors. The walls and fixtures practically sparkled, but it wasn't long before I realized that the builders had cut more than a few corners. Like noise insulation, when my neighbors had a party, a fight, or a kinky boss secretary roleplay, well, I could hear everything. It felt like being underwater in a crowded pool, all those distant, muffled voices that surrounded me on all sides. The shower was the quietest room in the house, at least when the neighbors weren't using their bathrooms as well. I scheduled my bathroom time to avoid theirs putting on some tunes while I showered and shaved, taking a brief vacation from the universe of noise outside. The first time I heard it, I thought it was just water burbling in the drain. The second time, I figured my downstairs neighbor must have a new shift. Why else would I hear voices coming up the drain pipe at midnight? A female voice, too, which was strange, considering my downstairs neighbor was a 40-something male truck driver. Maybe he had a girlfriend? I finished rinsing off and heard no further noises from downstairs. I was steaming up the mirror with hot water and humming along to the radio when I heard her again. A distant, mumbling voice from beneath the shower. I couldn't make out the words, but it wasn't loud enough to disturb me. She kept repeating something over and over in the same tone and cadence. It made me wonder if maybe she was singing, too. The thought brought a smile to my face as I brushed my teeth in the foggy mirror. A new girlfriend? 
I found an excuse to ask my neighbor about the mysterious singer downstairs during one of our awkward elevator conversations about sports and the weather. He snorted and shook his head. It's just, I thought I heard singing from your bathroom. Son, I'm a trucker. I usually shower on the road. Half the time I'm not here, and I know that no girl has ever sung in my shower. My downstairs neighbor gave me another odd look over his shoulder as he brushed past me and out of the elevator. My comment had been pretty personal, after all. Maybe I should have left things alone. But the voice in the shower had other plans. Not five minutes later, I heard it again while I was washing my hands. It sounded like it was coming from right beneath me, but from several miles away at the same time. I felt like a creep, but I turned the water off to listen anyway. Was it? I blushed. Maybe she was talking about me. I finished up and left the bathroom. The next time I heard her, I actually leaned a little closer to where the sound was strongest. The shower floor. Now it came through more clearly. The echoes... So dark, so cold, so far away. As I'd thought, she kept repeating the same words over and over, like a song or a prayer. I was starting to get a little concerned, not only for my over-the-road neighbor who might have a squatter, but also for myself. There was something eerie and a little bit insane about those words. The echoes, so dark, so cold, so far away. It made it hard to concentrate on my shower. The shadows behind the curtain took on a life of their own. Every time I closed my eyes to shampoo my hair, I imagined opening them to see a starved, cadaverous, insomniac face, the kind you get by doing nothing but singing in the shower in the dark all day, inches away from me, licking its bare gums hungrily. Of course, nothing of the sort happened. But the mysterious voice still kept disturbing my showers. No matter how high I turned up the radio, I realized that those whispers would always feel like they were right behind me. Finally, a night of bad sleep and a sticky, stressful day at the construction site pushed me over the edge. Hey! I yelled into the emptiness. Did you knock it off already? The repetitive words stopped, and I felt bad almost instantly. You... you can hear me. 
The echoes. Yeah, I can. The awkwardness of this, uh, bathroom conversation set off my nervous tick. I started scratching my neck. So, look, uh, if you could just not... Uh, so dark, so cold. Then tell. I have something I need to tell you. It was a bad idea, and I knew it was a bad idea, but I bent down anyway. I kept going until my cheek was almost touching the cold, wet tile. This was the stupidest... Pale fingers with too many joints shot up from the drain and grabbed my ear, pulling me down. I moaned and squirmed, but those thin fingers held me against the wet tile as the voice in the shower whispered on. I felt moist, dead breath against my cheek. Shh. I just want to warn you. Don't look up. The thing that did this to me is crawling above you. Right now. Sour Belly by Charlie Davenport. I'd been puking for weeks. No end in sight. Dr. Kareth finally threw up his hands and made the referral for St. Anne's. Something set Ma off during the consultation, and she gets into it with the doc, like 90s Springer style. With both of them arguing and neither of them paying attention, I decided to see if the gift shop had any Coke. The only thing that settled down the gripe in my guts. I was following the floor lines. You know, blue for radiology, red for emergency, etc., etc. I'm walking on them like a tightrope walker, because why not? But when I look up, I am good and lost. Like in a dark part of the hospital that hasn't been discovered yet lost. I start to panic, as kids do. But then I see that there's one room with a light on. It's all the way at the end of the hall, and I hear talking. When I get there, I see four huge guys pushing the skinny old man down on the hospital bed. He was growling and swearing at them the whole time. There was no way these linebackers should have had any trouble, but this senior citizen was lifting like a foot above the sheets. I don't know why, but I walked in, And that's when I saw the guy in the corner. All in black robes with a Bible open. Nearly as scary looking as the old man himself. He glares at me and just waves his hand for me to go leave. I figured I'd find my own way back. But all the snarling and cussing suddenly stopped. And I hear this voice say... Got a sour belly? 
I didn't turn around. I just ran. 32 years. And I haven't been to a hospital since. This is Where by Marcus Demander. This is where you walk up to the stage, seven little steps in front of the audience, but off to the left. You could go in through the back, but you don't. You want the early arrivals to see you. You want to wave at them. This is where the curtain meets the wall. Stage right. It's where you duck behind the curtain, wave at the stage hands. Over there, that's where I'll be, in the audience, waiting. This is where you'll get dressed, where your makeup will be put on for you. This is where the people who actually work on the show will tell you how great you are, how unique. What a rare talent you are. They'll tell you you're going places that they'll be able to say they knew you back when. This is where the curtain meets the wall, stage left. It's where you'll peek out into the crowd from backstage when not out on stage yourself. You'll want to see how the show is going, see the audience's reactions to things. So will I. You know what they say. If you can see the audience... The audience can see you. I'll be right over there, in the front row, watching the place where you stand, watching you. And this is where you'll burn to death. You should never have gotten the part. It should have been mine. The director liked you better. The director was wrong. You'll see, soon enough. Everyone will. This is where you'll become a star. But you know what they say. The brightest stars burn the fastest. And when you burn out, this is where I'll turn to the crowd. Take a bow. This is where screams and applause become one. Coincidence or Causality by Z. Martin Coincidence or Causality What are you talking about, Nick? What do you think this horror flick is based on? I'm not following you. It's simple. All horror movies now are based on coincidence or causality. It's a coincidence that the couple moves into the house with the possessed doll. It's causality that the teens get murdered messing with the Ouija board. No matter what movie it is, it's always based on those two. If someone made a movie without using either of them, people might get scared, you know? I... I... I I guess you could say it's... um... 
<sighs> Any day now, Sam. It's a simple question of coincidence or causality. I've shown you the first few minutes. You should be able to guess by now. Look, man, I don't know what you're trying to get at, all right? Sam, 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 do you think I'm stupid? I've explained it pretty clearly, I would think. Was the clip I showed you of my useless cheating girlfriend getting her skin flayed open coincidence or causality? Causality, I guess, man. Jesus, just let me go. You were going to... Break up with her anyway. Causality, exactly. Hallelujah. He does have more than one brain cell left. Look, I'm sorry, man. Just let me go, and we can forget this whole thing ever happened. I won't tell... Nick, what... What are you doing? Let me ask another question, Sam. Do you think it's a coincidence you're tied up in my bed? The same bed you and her defiled in my absence? I... Don't bother answering. It's all rhetorical, honestly, at this point. No matter how much coincidence there is, causality is always at the real heart of the matter, Sam. The cause and effect of what you did will be simple. I left enough of your DNA with her, along with a typed-out letter from your computer admitting guilt. You... Sick fuck! Now, now, no need for your last words to be so negative. Now, for your causality, I've given you a nice little tranquilizer. It will appear self-administered, and I worked hard on it, but it won't matter. The lit oven and broken gas line you rigged will deal with the rest. Nick, please. Bye, Sam. If by some coincidence you make it out, well... I'll be waiting for my causality. Below by Samuel J. Allen My life was an unending monotony. Trapped inside a metal tube at the bottom of the ocean, three months of rotation before I next set foot on land, sitting at the sonar console, staring at a green screen with pixels flowing down like an 80s Amstrad knockoff, shift after shift. There's nothing there, though you have to keep looking because if you look away, something might appear. Very weak, barely noticeable, the merest hint of a blip. But if you miss it, well, there are no second chances at such depths. Yet when we came upon the creature, we were convinced it was an anomaly. Nothing could be so massive. I'd encountered pods of over 50 humpbacks, and yet this single entity dwarfed even that. And before anything could be done to avert our course, we were upon it. All efforts to navigate away were fruitless. We drifted toward the gargantuan form as if it had its own gravity. Engines dead, helplessly dragged by the deep water current. Weaponry we engaged was ineffectual. As we drifted ever closer, a guttural thrum enveloped the submarine, reverberating around the steel interior and pounding inside our skulls. We were in its thrall. 
The madness engulfed the crew so suddenly as word of the impossible monstrosity beneath bled through the boat faster than any leak might have. In those first few minutes, many opened their veins. Some now dashed their heads against their bunks in a vain effort to escape our new hell. Others chitter madly still, chewing off the ends of their fingers in despair as we agonizingly approach the center of the leviathan form. The seabed itself trembles, tearing apart as if a meteor rises from within Earth's core. Now I only wait for crushing oblivion. The sonar screams in my ears, joining the screech of metal as our structural integrity is lost, before we are crushed beneath the infinite black water. It is moving. Up. Babysitter's Club by Evan Dickin No, you don't understand. The calls are coming from inside the house. The detective's words came quick and urgent. You need to get the kids outside before... Thanks. I hung up, feeling a muttering buzz tickle up my spine as I slipped the phone into my pocket. I could hear them now, a chorus of muted voices rising to swallow my thoughts in a murky babble of chatter. Every once in a while, someone said something funny, and the buzz dissolved into a spray of bright laughter. I couldn't make out what they said. Not yet. But I knew what they wanted. What they needed. The Anderson's kitchen had plenty of knives, all stuck to one of those magnetic strips along the kitchen wall. I took my time selecting one of the shorter carving knives, one with a thick bolster to keep my fingers from slipping up over the blade. A lot of people think bigger is better, but in close quarters, a hallway, a stairwell, a kid's bedroom, small knives work wonders. Fourteen stairs to the landing. Another four to the upstairs hall. I'd pace them out as I played tag with Brayden and Melissa earlier in the evening, looking for all the creaky bits, learning where to put my weight as I ghosted up the stairs, silent as a held breath. I paused in the hall. The voice is quieter but more insistent. Like a house cat spotting movement across the room, They went from languid to laser-focused in a heartbeat. They were with me now. My sisters. Their collective outrage arced along muscle and bone until it was all I could do not to rip my way straight through the drywall, shrieking and spitting like some valley girl revenant. And yet, I hesitated. Not from apprehension, I'd spent the last few months listening in on police channels, combing through the scraps of information that trickled through the news sites and crime blogs. I knew this asshole's modus operandi. The calls, the gravelly laughter, the mounting excitement in his voice as he grew more brazen, more suggestive. I knew how he'd gotten away with the others. 
I knew what needed to be done. I just didn't want to wake the kids. Brayden's room was the obvious choice to hide in. Good view of the stairs, easy hallway access. And yet, Melissa's door was open just the slightest crack. Could the killer be squatting in the turgid dark, grinning like some shit-eating toad as he waited for me to open Brayden's door and show him my back? Even with my girls, I wasn't sure I could muscle my way clear if that asshole got the drop on me. Worse, the cops would be here any minute. It came to me in a whisper, threading my thoughts so elegantly I wasn't sure if one of the girls had spoken or I'd had the idea myself. Smiling, I pulled out my phone, selected the number that had been calling me all night, and hit redial. There was a buzz from Melissa's room. A muffled curse as the asshole fumbled to silence his phone. I was on him in a blink of an eye, a shadow among shadows, eyes dark with vengeance, knife bright as the gleam of my bared teeth. He didn't have time to give more than a wet, snorting grunt as my knife went into him. One. Two. Three. Ribs, armpit, throat, my blade quick as a biting fly. His own knife, a big, ugly hunting blade, spilled from nerveless fingers. He pawed at me, but I stepped aside, letting him stumble into the hall so I could slip behind and softly close Melissa's door. Now I caught him up, an arm around his quivering shoulders as I guided him carefully to the hall, all my sister's weight pressing down as his feet tapped out a muffled staccato on the hallway rug. I pressed my knife to his neck. The murderer's eyes rolled, red-rimmed and wild as they sought my gaze. I turned my head away, not willing to give this asshole a glimpse of the woman who was sawing through his throat. A minute, and it was done. All his shit and nastiness ran out in a spreading pool of crimson dark against the faded forest green of the hallway carpet. I took his wallet, keys, and phone, then left the headless corpse for the cops. My work here was done, but my work was far from over. Distant sirens followed me to my car, the blue and red of flashing lights bright in my rear view as I drove away at exactly the speed limit. My sister's laughter filled me, cheers, whoops, and calls of, you go girl, echoing through my thoughts. It was hard not to smile as I drove to the nondescript row house across town. See, I knew how the murderer did it, how he killed and killed and killed again without ever being caught. For staging like that, you needed an accomplice, someone who knew how to spoof a phone, to bounce a call, But I had better than caller ID. I had sisters. A whole fucking supernatural sorority lifting me up, guiding me, honing me to a perfect instrument of vengeance. 
The dead asshole's keys slid into the lock. I eased the door open and slipped inside. There was blood smeared across the screen of his phone, but not enough to gum up the facial recognition lock when I held up his severed head. Tossing it aside, I dialed the number. Upstairs, a phone buzzed. A thin voice answered as I held the phone to my lips. Denny? Let me save us both a lot of time. I finally allowed myself to smile. The call is coming from inside the house. The Marionettes by Carolyn A. Drake The humid air weighs heavy with my name. My sweet sister Dottie calls in the distance. I hear Pa's coach winding through endless dark copses. Oak groans and bends above me. The brook gurgles below. Dottie's voice draws nearer. I cannot speak. Broken teeth splinter my lips and still my tongue. A howl. A sorrowful call of a hound unleashed in the woods. The cry echoes through the trees, but rain dampens the earth. The dogs will not find my scent. Then, a man's voice rises in the melody of baying hounds. My body stiffens. Thomas. Scalawag, I want to snarl. I ache to warn Dottie, who took a shine to my bow same as I when he came to town. A carpetbagger, true, but so handsome and charming that even Pa consented to our courtship. Dottie was hurt, but I was older, and Pa said there was time yet for her to meet a suitor. But now, now, I want to scream. I cannot draw breath. All I might do is sway, sway. We all sway beneath the groaning bridge. Dolls surround me. Once lavished with affection, their lips are now frozen in eternal yawns, parted and blue. Their arms dangle, limp. Sparkling love tokens adorn their skeletal fingers. Their cheeks are sunken, bones pearly. Skin weathered, eyes fodder for the crows. And I am now one of them. I am a part of the collection. Wooden wheels clap. The voices are above me now. If only I could reach up and touch the hounds as the creatures bound over the bridge. But I cannot. I know now that I will never be found. Melanie! Melanie! Dottie and Thomas call my name. The crows caw and scatter. Flesh clings to their beaks. 
The movement of Pa's carriage over the oak planks rocks the bridge. Below, we marionettes dance on our strings. Too Cute by John E. Darkley My wife Riza has always been fond of all things cute. I can even remember the first time I went over to her house and saw her room riddled with Winnie the Pooh plushies. <laughs> I was dumbfounded. I'd say it was cute, but we were already 17 at that point. And for her room to look like that of a 10-year-old's, honestly, it caught me off guard. It was even weirder trying to make love to her when Pooh was everywhere, staring right at me. He's just too cute, she always said. Despite her obsession, I persisted, and eventually we married. She managed to move on from Pooh but only because she had a new obsession. Babies. I wanted to squeeze them so bad. God, they're just too cute. <laughs> She'd squeeze my arm like an anaconda every time she saw a baby in the stroller. She kept egging me on until eventually I caved and we had our daughter. Ever since we brought her home, Riza couldn't keep her hands off her. She'd sniff and hug and just bombard her with undivided attention. Every day. Warmed my heart to see my wife that happy. And the memory of it still does. Our daughter died during her second week home. I had just come back from the store when I saw Riza slouched on the floor. Our baby held firmly in her arms. Riza was sobbing, and yet smiling uncontrollably at the same time. That's when I noticed our daughter's body had been limp the whole time. Her head and limbs bobbing around like that of a doll's. Riza had been hugging her since I left. And she never let go. Squeezed her to death. She said she couldn't stop. Couldn't help herself. Because our daughter was just... Too cute. <laughs> <laughs> Knocking by Angela Nolan when I asked for a sign from beyond the grave from my beloved uncle, I expected the planchette on the Ouija board I was using to move. Instead, I heard a soft but persistent knocking. 
Abandoning the board, I frantically scoured my small flat to locate the noise. As I entered the bathroom, I couldn't contain my scream of shock and my hands flew up to my mouth. My uncle was in the mirror where my reflection would normally be, smiling fondly at me, looking just as he had in life. He waved at me, then gently placed his palm against his side of the glass. I stood staring for a few seconds, then rushed to place my own hand over his, desperate to interact with him one last time and worried he could disappear at any moment. For one wonderful, crushingly fleeting second, I felt the soft warmth of his hand against mine. As I looked up at him, beaming, his eyes turned cold and gradually became as black as coal. I tried to pull away, but he was faster, lacing his fingers through mine and grabbing my hand with shocking force. My body jerked as he began to pull me towards him. I managed to pull away with a surge of adrenaline, but in an attempt to keep dragging me in, my uncle's hand sprouted claws that left me dripping blood on the bathroom floor. I tore down my shower curtain and covered the mirror, then ran around covering the other mirrors in my flat. Where our hands met, black cracks had begun to splinter across the glass. And whatever is using my uncle as a puppet is now pounding on the glass. I don't know how much longer it'll hold. Brecon Bridge by A.C. McCannelly. It was well documented that Brecon Bridge was a dumping ground for corpses. Naturally, the legend of the Breaker was born from these facts. A poltergeist of a bookie long gone lurked about that bridge waiting for someone to venture alone and find themselves in its den. But if you go as a group and place a bet, only the loser or cheaters are dragged away for unspeakable things. That's what we'd always heard. So I couldn't pass up my chance at getting back at Danny for ruining any chance I had with Mandy. We played blackjack. I let Danny deal. I knew he always kept cards up his sleeve. None of us really believed, but we liked the thrill of something happening. At least, until the breaker stepped out of the shadows and broke Danny's neck. (laughs) The girls screamed and ran off, but I just stumbled back. I thought I was safe since the breaker had what he wanted that night. I walked backwards slowly as he tore Danny limb from limb. The snapping of appendages gushier than I thought they would be. I wonder if I could talk Marcus into coming down here and playing a game of craps.
Avenging Angels by Donna J. W. Munro Day 10,876,032 They are at my window again. Scabby, wan bodies pecking at the sash, searching for a crack in my defences. They're mindless now. They've ripped the golden hair from their heads and starved away the hard muscle from their life above. The only remnant of what they were is the set of ivory wings fixed to their backs, shining bright and impossibly beautiful against the eternal darkness of this place. They scratch and leer at me through the glass. Tongues long and bloodied lash against thin lips. They still hate me after all these years. I deserve hate. Pride goes before the fall. I hear that has become a saying on earth, used so often that people have lost the horror behind it. I won't forget. They won't let me. Day 10,900,189. My fingers have their own mind this morning. Tapping and scraping at the window, the leering eyes lulled me into some pre-conscious state. My eyes saw only the past and what the creatures outside my window had been before, remembering my promises to them, remembering the long, long fall that broke their bodies. I'm still beautiful, shining like a beacon for their frenzied seeking. Wings beat against my walls and my roof. I'll never see the sun again. When I shook off my malaise, I saw my fingers caressing the lock. What brought me to awareness in that moment of clarity? The angels outside had fallen silent, watching my hands with a sudden hope. Their cavernous mouths gnashed quietly, teeth shining with ropes of drool. Not today, my friends. Day 11,008,490 I talked to God, probably more than all the priests, imams and rabbis put together. Once, God and I talked all the time. I asked God why I was created, if he knew all along about my pride. Was I made to fall? To be a scary story told around pulpits for the faithful? To be a Halloween costume? A joke? Michael, Gabriel, metronome, (laughs) flawless servants. Me, the beautiful loser. I regret it all, but regret isn't the same as being sorry. How can I be sorry for doing what I was made to do? The angels at my window keen with pain. They have forgotten who they were, what they agreed to when they fought in the War of Light. They forgot how my words convinced them. They are only left with the knowledge of God and his absence. That has made them monsters. Day 12,988,082 Sometimes I imagine God's face, what I think God looked like. He took his visage from my memory, not wiping it clean, but smudging it, smearing it enough so I remember him there and long for him. His words remain, but not his voice. My punishment is complete. I wonder if he misses me. Today, I press my face against the window pane and let the angels smash against me through it. 
They bleed from the places they bash against the unbreakable glass. Maybe it's cruel to cause them more pain, but on days when I hurt, I have no pity for them. They chose to follow me. They chose. Day 12,999,999. I always hope on the days that signify a new epoch, days like today, that perhaps our sentence will end. Hope is a torture all on its own. Even the creatures settle and cease their flapping as this day happens. If God doesn't release us, can we release ourselves? Day 13 million. They watch me from the window. The rage is back, squalling in their cries and clutching claws raking the glass. They wrestle on my roof and beat against the walls. I am done with this punishment. I will not continue on this path as it is written. I put my hand on the window latch and turn it with a slow deliberation. Outside, the angels line up for the feast. There is no cooling breeze when the window slides open. Just the angry gusts off of the fanned wings of their jamming, leaping attempts to get to me. I am torn apart. My body is stripped to pieces until only my bones remain. Darkness, please. Let darkness finally claim me. Even without eyes, I see my light begin to fade as the monsters splinter my bones between their sharp teeth. Day One My eyes open. Outside of my window, the angels preen and order their feathers. The golden hair and plump muscles make them beautiful. But I know they will come for me. I see the blood smeared on their peaceful faces that glow against the dark. My blood. I am punished. I am punished forever. The Sign by Charlie Davenport The sign said, not for sale. So as you can see, the hose, the tin plate canister, even the eyepieces are all perfectly intact. A 1916 small box respirator. Wow. The sign said, do not touch. Indeed. Before this, our boys had to make do with the hypo or the black veil. This little beauty and its like saved so many lives. Well, until 1917 and Ypres, of course. Hmm? Mustard gas, my good man. Can you imagine? There you are, snug behind your mask, and suddenly you see that cloud of yellow-brown foulness creeping towards you over the trenches. Before you know it, the wind has it carried to you, and then you feel just the tiniest... Oh, oh. would you excuse me? How much for this? What? 
How much do you want for the mask? Can you read the sign? The sign said, not for sale. The sign said, do not touch. The sign said, do not wear. What did it hurt? <laughs> this is amazing. It's like I'm... What is that? Uh, sir? Sir, there's something with... Now, sir. Oh, no. Americans. Why do they never read the sign? by Christina Orlia. Last week, I noticed a smudge on the wall in the hallway. It was roughly the size of my fist. I rubbed my fingers over it, hoping that it was just dirt, but it felt oily. When I inspected my hand, there wasn't any residue on my fingers. I grabbed a sponge and began scrubbing the wall. To my surprise, it wouldn't budge. The next day, I used a gallon of kilts, already tinted the shade of beige that graced my walls, and began painting. After three hours, six beers, and four coats of paint, that damn smudge still remained visible, mocking me. It had to be some form of super-resilient mold. There was no other reason for this smudge to be so tough. After a few phone calls, I found a certified industrial hygienist. I described what I was looking at, the measures I had taken, and they said they could be out in the morning to perform an inspection. My bell rang at 8 the next morning. After a full top-to-bottom house inspection, they said my house was the cleanest they'd ever seen. I asked about the smudge, and they agreed that it was odd, but it wasn't any type of mold. Defeated, I thanked them for their time and escorted them out. With a clean bill of health, I decided my only option was to cover the smudge with a picture. After a few hours of rearranging my walls, I settled on a reproduction of Salvador Dali's The Persistence of Memory as the lucky cover art. It seemed appropriate. Well, the persistence part of it anyways. Rightfully annoyed, I went to bed. A loud crash yanked me from slumber. Cramming my feet into my slippers as I turned on the lamp, I groggily looked around the room. The noise hadn't come from in here. Irritated, I walked towards the door. Through the door came a different noise. It reminded me of when I was a child. I would run in the mud, feet getting stuck with each step. The gulping, devouring sound that the mud made 
as my foot was pulled free. That was the noise I heard coming from the hall. Slowly, I opened the door and looked. The dolly reproduction was face down on the floor surrounded by broken glass. Tentatively, I took a few steps towards the mess. The sound of muck almost forgotten pulled my gaze upward to where I was met with a face. A face struggling to free itself from the smudge. My God, Shoes by K.M. Bennett. There's nothing like a new pair of shoes to make you feel better. At my job, things can get pretty grim and gloomy, so it's important to find the silver linings. Literally. I snagged these cute little wedges a month ago with silver soles, and the straps were decorated with stars. Sometimes there's dry spells, though. I only have time to shop on my lunch break, and sometimes I don't find any shoes at all. But I am shopping every day. And I work so hard. So when I saw the Louis Vuittons peeking out from under the hospital bed, I didn't feel bad about a little cheating. The patient was mostly gone. I helped things out a little by pulling the plugs. I thought about taking the shoes then, but waited for their effects to come to me for processing instead. Working at the hospital morgue has its perks. Hide and Seek by L.F. Shelley. She pushes it into the attic, bolting the door shut. It claws at the cherry wood, wailing in defeat. She heads downstairs, retrieving a cloth to clean the blood from her eyes. Her back is shredded like wheat, a crimson discoloration on her blouse. She runs for the phone, her fingers fumbling over the digits. She requires aid, wishing to reach someone on the receiver, yet there is no response. The line is detached, leaving her powerless. She drags her left leg, leaving a trail to the kitchen. She needs a weapon, something to defend herself from this hellish thing. The lights flicker and the ceiling rumbles. She hears it rushing about upstairs, searching for an escape. There's a loud bang and everything goes dark. She holds the knife steady, prepared to strike. The attic door wedges open, creaking in the quiet house. She hears the footsteps scaling the staircase, speeding toward the kitchen. Her heart is beating fast. Her body is trembling with dread. He sneaks up from behind, stabbing her in the back with a sharp object. She screams in agony and tumbles to the floor. 
She now lays in a pool of blood as she can see its smile in the moonlight. It points and chuckles at her in triumph, simply replying. <laughs> Tag, Mommy! You're it! The Deadly Catch by Summer Harris I double-checked my line, then cast off into the dark water. The choppy waves caused the boat to bob slightly. I waited for a quiet hour before feeling a sharp tug on my line. I planted my feet and prepared for the fight. The struggle lasted until I worried my strength would fail me. When I at last managed to haul the creature onto the deck, she opened her yellow, almost human eyes to glare at me. Her razor-sharp teeth were bared and her tail thrashed violently. I smiled down at her. It was time for her to pay for my husband's gruesome death. Blood for blood. Omnivores by Morgan Chiarella. It started with fellas coming to the ranch less and some just plain disappearing. The Lowells left Red and never came back for him. Now Red, like most horses, eats about 400 pounds of food a month, which is why Joshua said he had to do what he did. Then we had problems with electricity and water that I don't know much about. Joshua took care of that. What I know is that no water means a lot of dead horses. Prince was the first one to go. He keeled over, breathed out hard once, and died. Now, I've been seeing horses die since I was four, but this was the first horse I saw starve. He also told me that outside the ranch, things were changing. The town was emptying up and things got broken. I stuck to the ranch as I always did. One night, some drifters walked in and went for the horses. I shot one in the leg, but they didn't go. I shot another in the neck, and off they went, carrying or being carried. Joshua said, next time, just give them a horse. We can't keep all of them alive. No one's eating my horses, I thought, but I didn't tell him. The second to go was Big Charlie. He lost 200 pounds in three weeks. Joshua said he'd take care of the body himself but take care of it is not what he did. He bled him, cut him up and crushed his bones. His blood went in the water and his meat and bones mixed up in the feed. The horses didn't like it, but they ate it. Only Lady B preferred to die than eat. That ain't right, I told Joshua. They'll adapt, he said, looking me in the eyes. There were fires outside the ranch every day, 
and drifters sneaked in, but I made them run with my gun. Joshua and Faith never left their house. I could hear them shouting. Lady B got real weak one night before dawn. I was standing guard and I saw her die. Her legs trembling, two mares cornered her, and the smallest one went for the neck and ripped off a chunk. I'd never seen that happen, and I'd seen fights all my life. I remembered my Uncle Ty. He said that Mustangs up in Staple Valley fought like that. She squealed, and the blood filled the air. The others kicked and ran and tore her apart. It wasn't quick. They didn't know what they were doing, but they didn't stop. I saw Joshua at the window. He watched Lady B be eaten alive and didn't come out of his house. Drifters kept coming in at night, and during the day I saw no one. Joshua said it was hell outside, and I heard him talk to Faith at night. She just shouted no. He said they should take the boat. He said the lake was the only safe place. He said the fires would reach the ranch someday, and if not, the drifters would get them. He said I would stay with the horses. He said their only hope was to get to the Great Lake, and there was no hope left for me and the horses. He said they were a family, and they had to look after each other. He said I had no family. I had the horses. That night, they ripped Akeem apart. He was still breathing when I saw the white of his ribs. These flesh-eating horses weren't my horses. I stopped using their names when they started eating. They needed new names. No, they needed no names at all. They just stayed close to one another to see which was the weakest, waiting for the next one to feed on. These animals weren't my horses. I waited for Joshua and Faith to run, and I followed. I kept out of sight all the way to the lake, and no drifter saw us either. Outside wasn't any different from what I remembered. Everything was dead or dying, and the sun slowly burning it all. On the boat, I got Joshua's gun and threw it in the water. I still had mine and hit Faith in the jaw with it, and then I broke Joshua's knees. That was a mistake because I was no good for sailing. We drifted for days. Days were long without the horses. I checked on Joshua and Faith instead. I never let them out of my sight, even when pissing or shitting. After just two days, our skin was bleeding from the sun and Faith wasted her water on crying. I hit her hard in the stomach, but she didn't stop. Joshua jumped up at me, but I showed him the gun and he sat back down. He looked up at me and said I was a fool. He said I killed us because there wasn't enough food and water for three. But I wasn't the fool because I knew what was coming next. And I told him, we'll adapt. The Thompson Curse by Stephen Howard. I dropped my case of beers on my great grandmother's headstone, leaning my shovel beside it, and get to loading my 12 gauge shotgun. It's a newer Winchester semi automatic, 
when your target moves as fast as a turkey at most, it does the job just fine. It's a cold day. It always is, April 1st, the start of the cruelest month. The only good thing about having to come here every damn year is not getting sucked into pranks or juvenile delinquency. But this year is different. I nearly didn't come. The house sits high on the hill, looming over the whole area, staring down at this spot. Its windows are blackened eyes set deep within gabled eye sockets. Of course, I haven't lived in it for a long time. No one has. Not since father passed. It's a house that expects a lot of us Thompsons. Some would argue it expects too much. I crack open a beer and take a swig. Not long now. I hear a squawk and look up to see birds line the branches of the ash trees. Others perch upon the metal railings that surround our family plot. Every year, without fail, they sit patiently waiting. Like they know what's going to happen. A deep, dark secret passed down through families of birds. Keep an eye on this spot. One day, young scavengers, you'll hit upon the mother load. Earthy scents invade my nostrils. And then rotten eggs. It's starting. Dull groans surround me. I raise my shotgun, ready to fire. A hand bursts from beneath the matted soil. Earthworms bubble upwards like champagne for the dead. I march toward the disturbed grave and wait. Scrambling forth, one hand becomes two, followed by a desiccated head and shoulders. Hey, Gramps. Good to see you. I pull the trigger and blast his skull into pieces, splattering mulched brain and skull scraps that'll sink into the earth like miracle grow. Another fist punches through its natural prison, only to be met with a bullet. Someone I never knew. A great uncle, I think. Soon, a third. The investment in the Winchester is really paying off. The recoil of the semi-automatic is much lower impact than the rusty old piece of junk I'd been using up to last year. I was bruised for days after normally. I hear a cry, higher pitched than the usual moans and groans and whirl round. I down the barrel of my weapon, ready to take out the next undead Thompson looking to wreak havoc on the unsuspecting world of the living. The cawing of crows and squawking of vultures stops. My breathing, ironically, stops. April. 
I cannot tear my eyes from the small, delicate hand scratching away at the soil. The 12-gauge trembles in my hands. Down the barrel, I see a mess of blonde pigtails emerge. Cute, puffy little cheeks. Button nose. But the eyes are milky and senseless and contain no recognition. I start forward until I'm a few yards away, watching as my daughter struggles out from her early grave. Groans play upon the air around me and bird calls scrap with them for supremacy. A grotesque serenade. April is rising from the rough hole. There isn't even a headstone yet. I gasp, feeling tears and snot run free down my face. Sorry, beautiful girl. It should have been me. It should have been me. All around me, bodies are shoving their way up towards the light. The dim, cold light of April. Just as they do every year. The Thompson Curse. Each year, the dead arise. Each year, the family must send them back. And now, my beautiful girl, named after this cursed month, her mother's doing. I should have seen it was an omen. If only I hadn't fallen asleep. All I have now is a scar along my hairline. That and memories. Bodies stumble forth around me, towards me. I am the enemy. I'm dinner. Something looms in my peripheral vision. The house is looking down at me because it knows I am the last. What will happen when I'm gone? Who will rebury the dead? April lunges for me. Not in embrace, but in blind rage. I pull the trigger. Then reload. Surprise Trip by Charlie Davenport Are you on your way here? What? No, I told you the trip got extended. I know, but the app shows you driving up I-15. Well, that's weird. I wish I was heading home. I hate missing our big night. Since you're like a third of the way here, are you trying to surprise me, you nerd? 
Well, what if I was? Babe, that's really sweet of you, but it's late, and you must be exhausted. You'd just have to head back first thing in the morning. There'll be other anniversaries, you know? Jesus, how fast are you driving? You just blew through Cajun? Seriously, Paul, that doesn't seem safe. I really did consider, but like you said, it just didn't make sense. Then what am I seeing? I have no idea. It says you're in Rancho now. From Cajon? That's not even possible. Unless you're driving like a maniac. Oh, I'm going to be so pissed at you. Look, I don't know what you're seeing, but it's not me. It says you're in town. It says you're in the parking lot. Really? Well, you can come down and let me in then. God damn it, Paul. Come on, I'll make it up to you. Let me in. Let yourself in, you asshat. I forgot my keys, if you can believe it. Then how did you drive? Babe, let me in. I'm sorry, but it was a long drive. Just let me in. Lillianne, let me in. Lillianne, let me in! Let me in! Let me in! Let me in! It's nothing, really. By Magia. It's a noise I hear every evening since I moved in here. I do my best to cover it up when folks stay over, and I haven't had anyone notice, but I don't want them to freak out for noticing. The hushed whispers from inside the oven have been a constant reminder of the sun going down, and it's come in handy many nights when I got caught up in working and forgot to go to bed. If it's too loud, I just close the kitchen door, and it's no issue to sleep through. The same strategy I use for guests. It's been months like this. At first, it terrified me, but after the first two weeks of nervously checking the kitchen, leaving the lights on all night and putting up motion sensors on my phone, I figured out it was nothing to worry about. It's certainly not a trick of the wind or the house settling. That I know for sure. I can make out words if I listen very closely. But I've long since gotten bored with that, and it's really just a mundane part of this house. It's also not just in my head. I had a repairman show up late one winter day, when the sun sets at five, and he heard it too. I told him it was a TV upstairs I left on, but I could tell he was spooked. He tried to fix the fridge as the oven whispered along behind him. 
and I tried my best to make excuses and distract him. It's really no issue. I used to hang bells on the oven door, I was so scared. The door's loud enough on its own that that was never a necessity. But it's been months and nothing's happened. It's fine. I really need to get to sleep, though. Whispers are loud tonight, though, so I may go. Is that the oven door? By K. G. Lewis. She held out the pieces of the crudely constructed figure. I'm sorry, honey. I accidentally stepped on the astronaut figure you made. In an effort to keep him from getting upset, she quickly offered to help him make a new one. Her son looked at the piece in her hand with disinterest. That's not mine, and it's not an astronaut. Whose is it? And what is it? It belongs to Grandma. She called it a voodoo doll. Her daughter came running into the house. Mom! I think Dad broke his back! What? How? I don't know. We were outside washing the car, and then he suddenly bent over backwards and fell to the ground. She looked down at the pieces of the figure in her hands, severed neatly at the waist. Ghost by Charlie Davenport. Some kids get really excited about picking out their costume for Halloween. All the possibilities. Not me. I've been a ghost for as long as I can remember. Simple and classic. I haven't been trick-or-treating since... Gosh, I don't remember when. These days, it's more about jumping out of the bushes, scaring kids and parents. It's all in good fun, you know? Yeah, Halloween is a blast. Except when I go home at the end of the night. The lights are always off, and Mom and Dad seem sad just sitting there at the kitchen table holding on to each other's hands I've seen them crying and I ask what's wrong but they never answer it's like they can't even hear me Overtime 
by Charles X. Cross. It is the 11th hour of my 91st consecutive shift. My eyes are strained, my back is hunched, and the task is unyielding. As the next block in the chain shunts along and streams of data dribble down my monitor, I shift my posture with a flurry of spinal clicks and reach unseeing for the lubricant brush. The weathered handle protrudes from the tin, slick with emollient. I grip it. The wood is smooth in my hand, worn to gentle waves from years of use and the hard and soft of the grain. The brush is heavy to lift, but I scrape away the excess, slopping oil back into the tin. Now prepared, I apply the soothing balm to the cylinders of soft flesh stretching between the monitor and my drooping head. My eyes. They scroll to the data, delicate muscles that trace their length encouraging them this way and that. My irises slither across the screen following and verifying fresh transactions, frictionless with new grease. Then, disaster. A hair in my eye. There is no worse feeling. It burns, it itches, it inflames. With enough time, it might coil around the girth of my ocular stem and snip the eye from the root. I fondle for the hair with my free hand, but it slips away with the oozing oil. Still, I assess its dimensions well enough. It's thick, heavy, but short. Thankfully incapable of forming a tourniquet. Relieved, I can tell it's not one of mine, long and lank. It's a bristle. A bristle has come free from the brush's clench and adhered to my left eye. I toss the brush to the tin with a practiced flourish. Reaching with a hand, coiling my long eye around the other, I chase the bristle as it blazes a trail of irritation across my sclera. I can feel white becoming pink. Blood vessels are bursting from the stress of it. My iris comes away from the screen with an agonizing slurp. I am momentarily dazzled. Half my world is still the data stream. And the rest is the floor, the ceiling, the cubicle wall, as my eye slithers through my grip like an eel. Then I clutch it, the bristle. Between finger and thumb, I peel it from my ocular stem, lubricant following in strands like albumen. The relief is palpable. I exhale, flick away the bristle, and smear my hands on my sagging breeches. I am about to return my eye to the monitor, a quivering plunger ready to suck to the glass once more, when I spy my manager passing the mouth of my cubicle. He slithers. Older than I, he is further returned to his constituent ooze. Such is the curse of ageless man. Flesh is not built to last. Eventually everything bends, buckles, protrudes, prolapses or pools. I point my eye towards him and wave with a withered arm. He jostles his crowning ribs, slinking through himself as he continues his rounds. Then he stops as if remembering something. Wet words hiss out between two flaps of hanging skin. Only three million more transactions to process. 
It's all down here from here. We'll have a pipe when we're finished. My spirits lifted, I returned to my work. A pint would be an excellent treat for a job well done. As I secure my eye to the monitor, I swear I can almost remember what one tastes like. Everything is Elemental by Chris Alinot. Have you ever seen what pure sodium can do? It's fun, isn't it? The teeniest little scrap reacts so quickly when dropped into water, it actually bursts into flames. It's so volatile that you can only buy it immersed in mineral oil. Some time ago, a student of mine was so impressed with the effect that they stole the tiny sample they'd been given and put it in their pocket for mischief later. Once the oil was absorbed by their genes, the sodium started reacting in the air, burning a hole in the material, and when it got hold of the moisture in the flesh, it was astonishingly quick. The poor kid had to have a massive chunk of his hip excised. Once they put him out, that is. It goes without saying that were someone to put it in their mouth and swallow, or be forced to swallow, the results would be calamitous. In fact, it would probably ruin that particular someone for any other experiments. Unless, of course, we just use this pinch-sized piece right here. Open wide... I said, open wide. How does it taste? I always imagined it would taste like salty tinfoil. No, no, don't bother answering. I've got something else to show you. This is a ribbon of pure magnesium. Pretty, isn't it? If you expose this to flame, it flares up and burns extremely fast. Were this to be, say wrapped around the arm of a philandering investment broker and lit like so it would leave a nasty third degree burn in its wake looks painful. We'd better do something about that. You don't mind iodine, do you? I made it myself. It's much stronger than what you get at the pharmacy. It stings a little, but there's nothing like it for treating a chemical burn. Oh, dear. That seems to have made things worse. 
How does that feel? Ah, never mind. I can't understand you. Okay, let's talk gases. This one is also homemade, but the recipe goes back over a hundred years. Back to World War One, I, I believe. They called it mustard gas back then, due to the yellow color. If someone were to open that valve there... Do, do you see it? Just outside the door? Yes, that's right. Oh, wait. I'll show you. For the sake of argument, let's say that a clueless, pathetic, washed-up science teacher were to turn on the valve. Well then, anyone inside that took that teacher's life savings and left town would start to get a little itchy under the collar for a while. Water blisters started to form all over his sweat. I'll stop blubbering. The vent will have that stuff cleaned up in a few seconds. Ooh, that looks nasty. Ew, don't pick it. Now, stay with me. We're almost done. <laughs> I fucking guarantee it. Now, what's this second valve for? Well, if that same investment broker we're talking about also left town with his client's wife, then our intrepid science teacher would open the valve on the canister over here. I love how simple the markings are on this one. H. Oh, it's great stuff, hydrogen. It does the same thing to your voice as helium. Did you know that? Of course you did. I mean, listen to yourself. <laughs> you sound ridiculous. Now, with a certain weak story excuse for a husband were to be careless with his cigarette after that, the results would be spectacular. The crazy thing is that we'd end up with water everywhere. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Hmm. Excuse me for a moment. Oh, not nearly as satisfying as I remember. <clears throat> but we all make sacrifices, I suppose. Want a drag? Oh, no? Wow. I'll just leave it over here if you change your mind. So many of my students go away from high school worrying that nothing they've learned will ever apply in the real world. I pity them. If they ever manage to capture the bastards responsible for ruining their lives, the results would be positively mundane. Hmm, are, are you trying to say something? I just cannot understand you. Is there something wrong with your mouth? Your story. Well, that's very nice of you. I appreciate the sentiment, but then I did swear revenge. 
and my word is as good as gold. The New Record by Andrew Perkins As Eli switched off the car's barely cool air conditioning, he rolled the window down in hopes that the night air would gain him some relief from the stench. Window. Singular. Believe it or not, this piece of junk car still had manual windows on a crank. Eli was at least lucky enough to have a functioning radio. That didn't always happen. As he searched through some radio stations to find one he liked, he found that nearly every channel was broadcasting the same emergency report. It was all anybody could talk about. Not surprising for a small town, but it still annoyed Eli that he couldn't find a decent song to keep him company. The radio stations went on and on about a curfew and how nobody should go outside alone. They said that until the three missing people had been found, everybody should stay alert and vigilant. This town was such a rundown mess, he wondered how they could even tell if people were missing in the first place. Every street corner he passed was decrepit. No more than a minute after this thought crossed his mind, he came to a stoplight. A small group of young men were gathered on the sidewalk nearest to Eli, and they stared at him as he waited for the light to turn green. To Eli's dismay, one of the young men walked to his driver's side open window. In a deep and taunting voice, the young man made a comment about how he shouldn't be driving around alone right now. And didn't he know that there was a killer on the loose? Eli tried to sound confident and tell the man off, but it came out meaningless and weak. The man laughed at this and said something inaudible towards his friends that made them all snicker. The sly smiles that appeared on their faces made Eli aware that a green light wasn't going to mean freedom from this situation. As Eli watched the group, he scarcely noticed the noise coming from the passenger side of the car. Almost as soon as he realized the door was opening, he felt something hard smash into the side of his head. With no time to react, it hit him again and again. Eli was certain that a part of his skull must be showing as he felt liquid running rather intensely down the side of his cheek. He felt his seatbelt unbuckle as he vomited all over himself. He was pulled out of the car by his shirt and then tossed to the asphalt. Two of the men grabbed his legs and dragged him towards the back of the car. Eli felt his face scrape along the pavement as they pulled him. His wallet and phone were removed from his pockets, and the men turned him onto his back. He watched as they popped the trunk open, assuming they were planning to put him in it. Rather than hoist Eli up and toss him in, however, the man who had first approached Eli called the others to come over and inspect the contents of the trunk. Even with the amount of pain Eli was in, He couldn't help but smile, knowing what they must have found. It would be quite shocking for anybody 
Eli imagined. To find such a variety of human body parts belonging to three different people, to be exact. The men were so confused by what they were seeing that they didn't even notice Eli get up off the ground. They didn't even notice that Eli had found the hammer that caved the side of his head in. But they did finally notice when Eli used the hammer to shatter one of the men's cheekbones and then the top of his skull. The men scattered off in various directions, and Eli did not have enough strength to chase them. He reserved what little strength he had left for the man that lay screaming on the ground in front of him. Eli wasn't sure if he would survive the night, but he was sure that four people from one town was his new record. Your soul deserves our venom. By Liesl Jones. That old lady don't know what she's talking about. These ain't spiders. Not like any I've ever seen anyway. More like weird foreign cockroaches or something. Fat shiny bodies. Gross hairy legs. One of the ugly shits scuttles towards me. I catch it under my boot and press down till it cracks like an egg. I grin and keep squashing as thick white goo oozes out. Most people don't see the appeal of being a pest controller. But it's got its perks. I've always been a bit weird, I guess. She calls down the basement stairs. You find them spiders yet? Sure have, Mrs. Rapex. A real infestation. Gonna cost way more than I quoted. Sorry. Oh dear, I guess I got no choice. <laughs> I chuckle quietly. Stupid, spider-obsessed bitch is clueless. But judging by her huge old house, she can afford it. My ankle itches. I shake my pant leg and an insect drops out. Shoot, Lil. I stamp. It splatters. There's another on the wall right at my eye level. Something about the way it's twitching just makes me wanna... I slap hard. Slick stickiness bursts in my palm. I draw my hand back, but pale stringy slime snaps it back against the stone. I try to step away. My feet are stuck too. 
Mrs. Raypax's wiry frame descends the stairs. Not really. I tug my wrist with my free hand, desperately lift my feet. Hopeless. I get more entangled. The bugs swarm towards the approaching Mrs. Raypax and disappear under her long black dress. What? Why? Her replies muffled as her cheeks bulge. Her jaw snaps. Two hairy fangs creep out of her mouth. Then shoot into mine. Suck It Up, Get It Done by Brandon Barrows. Cement dust rained across my feet as I whacked my hammer into the crumbling wall where Marty, my supervisor, figured out where the blockage was wondered how long it'd been since anyone maintained this area. I've been working sewer maintenance for the city of Boston about four months. But I was just realizing there were literally miles of tunnels, even in the little territory of the Old North End I'd been assigned. I doubted anyone had visited this one recently, and it showed in the decaying walls and walkways. I know you're thinking, the sewer, sick, but it's not that bad, especially considering my prospects were pretty limited. I'm 22, so you'd think I'd have options, right? But all I got's a GED and a pregnant girlfriend, and this is a good job. It's union and it pays well. Just gotta suck it up and get it done. I took another swing at the wall, hiding the pipe I needed to inspect. And howled a little in surprise when the whole thing came tumbling down, throwing me off balance so I fell forward into the tunnel on the other side. Choking on dust and wiping my watering eyes, I thought... Marty's gonna shit a brick. What a wet hissing sound, sort of like when you blow into a straw after your cup's empty, hit my ears. I nearly shit one myself, thinking I'd broken the pipe I was there to unclog. My eyes were still stinging, but I had to check the damage before getting Marty over here, so at least he couldn't say I didn't own up to it, and aimed my flashlight towards the sound. Man... I wish I hadn't. I screamed and dropped my light, but fear of screwing up beat fear of what was in front of me, because I picked it right back up and looked again. Uh, The pipe was blocked all right, by a hissing, stinking thing that reminded me of a little kid werewolf with mange. Its lower half was wedged in the pipe, but its upper half was piss yellow and brown, hissing, wriggling desperately and swiping at me with unnaturally long fingers ending in filthy-looking claws. It shrieked when I shone the light directly on it, and I saw big black eyes snap closed and a face more dog than human. 
I almost felt bad. I called Marty on my walkie. He was pissed I interrupted lunch, but I said I had something I didn't know how to handle. He asked if it could wait. I said probably not. He showed up 15 minutes later, took a look in the hole, swore a little, then said I'd done the right thing. He didn't seem surprised or nothing, just annoyed. I was glad someone was calm, because I was close to freaking out. Here was this demon or something in the damn sewer. I asked if I should call the cops, but Marty gave me a sneer and rummaged in his big toolbox. We ain't bothering them. This is just part of the job. Part of the job? I'd signed on to fix pipes and stuff, not deal with monsters. My eyes went wide as Marty pulled a big revolver from his box and handed it to me with a hard look. I took it, but said I didn't know anything about guns. What's to know? Point and shoot. I'd had enough and said so. Even the new guy needs an idea of what's going on. Marty actually seemed sympathetic for once and patted my shoulder. He pointed towards the little squirmy thing still in the pipe. Look, Sean, that's a ghoul. Just a little baby one, of course. These hills used to be chock full of them, and they'd run all around under the city. You'd hear about them sometimes. Not much anymore, but once in a while you find one. They break into the pipes, looking for food, I guess. And like it or not, anything that happens down here is part of our job. So, take care of it. Okay? I nodded, slowly. It did sort of make sense, even though I didn't like it. I aimed at the critter and fired. The sound so loud in that little space you'd swear the roof would cave in. Marty hadn't lied. It was easy, though the kickback made my elbow sore. He helped me pull the thing from the pipe, patch up the holes the thing had made, and recap it. When we were done, he packed up his toolbox, but as I tried to give him the gun, he put up a hand and said, Nah, you're gonna need it. I must have looked at him funny, cause he pointed into the darkened tunnel. Babies got mamas, don't they, dumbass? I sighed. Suck it up, get it done. Suddenly Shocking, Volume 16, was produced by Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett for the No Sleep Podcast. Featuring performances by Kyle Akers, Katabel Ansari, David Alt, Jake Benson, Matthew Bradford, Ilana Charnel, Jeff Clement, James Cleveland, Jesse Cornett, Andy Cresswell, David Cummings, Mike Delgadio, Kristen DiMercurio, Nicole Doolin, Nicole Goodnight, Ellie Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, Aaron Lillis, Jessica McAvoy, Danielle McRae, Ash Millman, Tanya Milozovic, Mary Murphy, Lindsay Russo, 
Graham Rowett, Erica Sanderson, Penny Scott Andrews, Regan Tacker, Sarah Thomas, Wafia White, and Dan Zapula. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com to learn more about our show and our season pass memberships. Thank you for listening to Suddenly Shocking, Volume 16. This audio production is copyright 2023 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.